Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Joshua, preparation number three. I sure hope you're enjoying our walk through the history of Israel. Okay, as we prepare to transition from studying the Torah to studying what is known as the books of the former prophets. And the former prophets begin with the books of Joshua and then Judges. And last week we looked at one of the most profound, earth-shaking, and yet little-known prophecies in the Bible. The cross-handed blessing of Jacob. When he bestowed upon his grandchildren Ephraim and Manasseh firstborn rights. These two grandchildren were the Egyptian sons of Joseph. They were Egyptian because their mother, Joseph's wife, was an Egyptian. And as part of this cross-handed blessing, Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh away from Joseph and made them as his own sons. Thus he was legally able to give to Ephraim, who was the younger of the two grandchildren, the rights of the firstborn that should have rightfully belonged to Jacob's true physical firstborn son, who was Reuben. Now, we also reviewed that two of the twelve tribes of Israel eventually became dominant over all of the others, Judah and Ephraim. And after the death of the second king of a united Israel, Solomon. Yes, he was the third king, but he was the first. David was the first king over a united Israel, Solomon the second. The nation disintegrated into a civil war. It became split into two separately governed kingdoms, that of Ephraim, typically and erroneously called Israel in our Bibles, and that of Judah. Ephraim was a conglomerate of ten of the twelve Israelite tribes, Judah of the remaining two. But Ephraim had a larger desire to be like their pagan neighbors than to emulate and obey God. And so the Lord led Assyria to conquer the kingdom of Ephraim and scatter those ten tribes that... They represented all over the Asian and, to a lesser degree, African continents. Thus was born the legend of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Okay. Now, Ezekiel tells us of a time in the near future, I believe, when Judah and Ephraim will both come back from their exiles and be present in the promised land. And I told you that this exact thing is in process right now. Right. Although it's going to go through some pretty serious hiccups and it's not at all completed. So let's resume our study today with Israel's time in Egypt. And we're going to do that by returning to our discussion of the time of Joseph. Now it's a little bit after 1800 B.C. And the 12 tribes of Israel are now in Egypt and they're going to remain there for four centuries. Now, at first, they're guests. Then they're going to be citizens, but they're going to wind up as slaves. And much has been written about the time that Israel, the Hebrews, spent in Egypt. And most of it, frankly, has expressed skepticism that they were even there. 
Interestingly, the problem is not that a large center of Hebrew culture hasn't been found in Egypt, because it has. The problem was the timing of it, the dating. According to archaeologists, the Hebrew culture found in Egypt doesn't match the biblical timeline of when Egypt was supposed to have been in Egypt. So a lot of scholars say the whole Exodus saga is just a folk tale. But the issue of whether or not Israel was ever actually in Egypt is really not, no longer in doubt. Egyptologists have indeed found the remains of an enormous Hebrew community in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, a region of Egypt, right where the Bible says it was supposed to be. Right up in this area here, the Delta region. This community was estimated to have been able to accommodate at least two million people. And it's called in scientific circles by its archaeological name, Tel Edaba. By its most recent historical name, it's called Avaris. And it's located right next to Pi Ramesses, the great city of the Pharaoh. And it all matches up perfectly with the biblical account except for one thing. Because of the currently accepted ancient dating system, using what scientists call regnal dating, that is dating based on the incredibly incomplete and often often baseless line of Egyptian royalty, archaeologists say this city of the Hebrews existed at the wrong time. Therefore, the whole notion of it has to be thrown out. So understand, you have to listen with a lot of skepticism to A&E, to the History Channel, Discovery and a bunch of these other ones that most often attempt to refute the biblical accounts. Archaeologists have indeed found many biblical cities, but because the scientists want to stick with this outdated and largely discredited regnal dating system, they refuse to acknowledge these biblical finds. Not because they're not there. They acknowledge they're there, but they supposedly occur in the wrong time. Well, back to our account of Israel and Egypt. The Bible is silent from the time of the death of Joseph, who died at the age of 110, until the birth of Moses. This was a period of about 300 years. Remember, we run into another very long silent period in the Bible, from the end of Ezra to the book of Matthew. And... This is the period of time that is basically covered by the 15 books of the Apocrypha that was removed from our Bible about 500 years ago. Now, extra-biblical sources indicate that for the first 150 to 200 years after Israel's arrival in Egypt, the Israelites prospered. Their numbers grew greatly. The succession of Semite, catch that, Semite pharaohs, not Egyptian pharaohs that ruled over Egypt, were tolerant of these Israelites because they knew they were cousins. (laughs) But these pharaohs also remember, and they continued to honor the promises made by the pharaoh of Egypt at the time Joseph was vizier of Egypt. And Joseph's decrees granted Israel, if you'll recall, citizenship and land 
And Joseph was seen as kind of a historical savior of Egypt for a long time, saving them from famine. But Egypt went into turmoil. Joseph died about 1700 B.C. And memories and promises, I think we can all testify, can be pretty short-lived things. Egypt at this particular time was two nations. It was called Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. In addition, warlords, tribal chieftains, governed a few areas within the boundaries of the formerly unified nation, here in the center. Now, it's kind of interesting to know that the names Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt are exactly reversed according to how we would kind of think of it. Upper Egypt is to the south, Lower Egypt is to the north, and this has to do because of the direction of the flow of the Nile. Now, after years of failed attempts by dozens of factions in Egypt seeking power, an army led by an Egyptian general from Thebes, which is modern-day Luxor, finally overthrows this detested foreign pharaoh. It's now about 1600 B.C., and a new pharaoh, an Egyptian, feels absolutely no obligation to Joseph's 200-year-old decree regarding his Israelite brothers. See, his driving need was to reunite this fractured Israelite, rather, rather uh, Egyptian society, right, and to reestablish a very strong central government. To accomplish that, a common cause was needed. Overnight, the Israelite population residing in Egypt was made a scapegoat for Egypt's problems. And suddenly they're regarded as even a threat to the throne. Now that scenario, with the Israelites and in our time being called Jews now, of being blamed for a nation's problems and then persecuted for it, is going to repeat itself over and over and over again down through history. And within a few years, private ownership of property in Egypt, which helped the Israelites achieve great prosperity there, was outlawed. The new pharaoh, this Egyptian pharaoh, decreed that the temples to the gods of Egypt would now own 20% of all land in Egypt. Guess who owned the remainder? He did. Peasants had no choice but to work the land as little more than serfs. And, of course, most Israelites were reduced to peasants. Egypt was propelled by a horrific memory now of this foreign control, this horrible subjugation they were under. So they started to protect their borders at all costs. But they also direct, directed their hate and insecurity inward to these Israelites who they now started to regard as foreigners, even though they'd been there for two centuries. Egypt rebuilt her armies that they intended not only to defend their nation with, but to go out and to conquer, and they did that with Egyptians. The Israelites would form the foundation of the servant work class so that Egypt could have its ambitious building projects. Well, the Israelites paid a very high price for their master's imperialistic designs, and their lives were miserable now. They had no hope. Anti-Semitism was at a fever pitch in Egypt. And even with these impossible conditions that the Hebrews were suffering under, their numbers continued to increase and increase 
And this alarmed the populace of Egypt and it certainly frightened the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, to combat this, used an ancient method of birth control. He ordered all male Israelite children killed immediately upon birth. Well, it's now about 1400 B.C. And a baby boy is born to the Levite family of Amram and Yehochabed. And they hide this child. They know that the Egyptian guard is soon going to discover their secret. And so they embark on a desperate plan. They put the baby's fate entirely into the Lord's hands. An Egyptian princess finds this little Levite baby floating in a waterproof basket in the Nile. The princess takes him out, names him as her own, and then gives him as the name Mose. We call him Moses. Mose is an Egyptian, not a Hebrew name. It means born of. Moshe, his Hebrew name, name means to draw out. That is, he was drawn out of the water and, of course, out of Egypt in time. Moses was raised in the palace of the Pharaoh. He received nothing but the best. He learned math and writing. He learned fighting skills, accounting, court etiquette. Most of the people at this time in history in Egypt only lived to be about 25 years old. So, Egypt was, so, so Moses was given a lot of authority at an early age. And despite a lot of Hollywood versions to the contrary, Moses always knew who his family was. He visited his mother often. After all, she even suckled him for many months after he was plucked out from the Nile because his sister Miriam introduced Moses' mother to the princess who found him. And then one day when Moses was, uh, was grown, he, he sees this Egyptian soldier strike an Israelite slave. Moses killed that guard and he buried him in the desert sand. I mean, why did he do that? The Egyptian did not kill or maim that Israelite. But Moses killed him in return. See, the problem was Egyptian law called for capital punishment for the killing of an Egyptian, no matter who the perpetrator was. Moses knew this. He threw away his royal life. Knowing that he'd be found out, he ran. And he couldn't go to Canaan, where the roads and the cities were guarded by Egyptian troops, because they were liable to recognize him, because there for sure would have been a formal warrant out for his arrest. Instead, he went to a place that really of very little interest to any conquering nation where only the hardiest souls attempted to live, the Sinai. And he, he trekked across the Sinai. He crossed over the finger of this finger of the Red Sea here called the Gulf of Aqaba into uh, Midian, the land of Midian, a place that was home only to Arabian desert crossers. And after an incident at a water well where he protects some local girls from being bullied, a Midianite priest takes him in. He gives him his eldest daughter as a wife. 
Moses becomes a shepherd of herds and flocks out in this desert. He fights loneliness for years. He tries to forget this privileged life that he once lived in the Pharaoh's, uh, the, 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 uh, Pharaoh's palace. He's trying to adapt to his new home. And so seeking answers as to why things are as they are, if all the gods of Egypt are false, as his father-in-law, Yitro, says they are, well then, who's God? And such things like that can really humble a man, make him moldable. About 40 years pass. Moses is 80 years old now. And he sees this flickering light off in the distance. A rather uncommon occurrence in the desert wilderness. And he goes to see what it is. And on a tall hill, the Bible alternately refers to as the mountain of God and Mount Horeb and later as Mount Sinai. Moses finds a bush that shines as though it's engulfed in flame, but it doesn't burn up. And as he approaches it, for closer examination, a thundering voice forces him to his knees. And the Lord, or rather the God that, that, that Moses has been seeking, reveals himself to him. And he says, I'm going to send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, and you're going to free my people. That's not all, he said. But it's also not at all what Moses had in mind for the rest of his life. And he tells God that. And God, in all of his mercy, makes promises to Moses. And Moses responds to those promises skeptically. And so God produces some proofs for Moses. And Moses asks to please be excused from this task and offers some lame excuse about a speech impediment. God gets real angry. So Moses says, I accept. And Moses informs his family of this supernatural experience he's just had. And so he takes his wife and his children and he heads out for Egypt. And I suspect somewhere along the line he decided that what lay ahead was too risky for his family, so he sends them back. Moses' older brother, Aharon, Aaron, who's soon going to become the first high priest of Israel, greets Moses upon Moses' arrival back in Egypt. Aaron has also been visited by God. He was informed of the plan. So Aaron had convinced the tribal leaders ahead of Moses' arrival that Moses had been sent from God to free them. Moses and Aaron take God's message to free his people to the Pharaoh who promptly rewards their efforts by increasing the Israelites' already deadly workload. The tribal elders and the people aren't particularly thrilled with this turn of events. So they blame Moses. Moses, in turn, blames God. And at this point, God says some things that could be easily overlooked in this often told story of Moses and Pharaoh. What God says, though, is really momentous. In paraphrase, God says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I didn't make myself known by my name. And his name was yud heh Some of you say Yahweh. Others say Yehovah. Say to the people, I am Yehovah. I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll take you to be my people. I'll be your God. So here is a new beginning. A beginning with a promise from God to Moses and the Israelites 
This is a personal God who wants to be known by his personal name. He detests Egypt. He loves his people. He'll fight for them. Moses visits Pharaoh again. He insists that the Israelites be freed. Pharaoh again declines. Moses warns Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't like to be threatened. So he bristles with anger. And he refuses to let these Israelites go. And, you know, the Pharaoh refusing to let Israel go can be pretty well understood when you consider that to allow the Israelites to leave would have been tantamount to destroying the entire working class of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine what would happen in the U.S. if all at once our carpenters, plumbers, electricians, cement layers, steel workers, roofers, painters, laborers of every variety suddenly disappeared? This is exactly what Moses was proposing to Pharaoh. So to attain the release of his people, something drastic was needed. God attacks the Egyptians through their false gods. The Nile turns to blood, frogs inundate the land, boils inflict the people, locusts attack the crops, and finally, God lets the Egyptian people and their Pharaoh feel the devastation the Israelites felt at the time of Moses' birth. All firstborn die. Increasingly, And interestingly, this deadly curse applies to all Egyptian-owned livestock as well. Well, the plagues work. Pharaoh relents. He bids the Israelites good riddance. And they leave. And he changes his mind and he chases them to the edge of the Red Sea. And trapped, the people feel sure Moses has made a grave error because their backs are against the deep waters and they have nowhere to escape. God opens the sea for them. He even dries the sea bottom, and the Israelites escape to the distant shore. Pharaoh's troops give chase, but they're drowned because the waters come crashing back in on them. And the exact site of that crossing has been much debated, and it's unknown, as is the exact route that the Israelites took when leaving Egypt. Liberal scholars claim that they didn't actually cross the Red Sea at all, but just over a rather large mudflat called the Reed Sea. However, this doesn't make much sense because even if it was necessary that God opened the waters for their escape, it's pretty difficult to understand how all those Egyptians died in a few inches of water. Now, a lot of Bible researchers think what they crossed over was at that time, and and was at that time indeed called the Red Sea, was the Gulf of Suez. Now, there's been a lot of research on this biblical event, or better, That's how we must always regard it, as a miracle of God. And as we well know, a lot of faith has been required for Christendom to stand firm against the consensus of opinion among some of the most renowned archaeologists and Egyptologists that this whole thing is just a deplorable myth. Actually, there is the greatest archaeological evidence that at a minimum the Exodus did occur that the number of Israelites was large, and as we previously discussed, the city where they were reported to live was of sufficient size to support an enormous Hebrew population. Now recently, though, some new light has been shed on the issue of the route of the Exodus, and as well as the location of Mount Sinai. I'd like to share some of that with you. I've shared it before. But personally, I, I find it quite convincing. Now, 
hopefully we've established where the Israelites were located in Egypt. They were, they were up here in the land of Goshen. Now, since they were up there, what would have been their best route? Well, we know that they didn't take the most direct route to Canaan that went up along the seashore right, because it would have gone through the area occupied by the Philistines. This was, as a matter of fact, it was named for them. It was called the Way of the Philistines. Instead, God told them to go on a route through the wilderness and to avoid that other route. And even though we know that they were eventually going to wind up in Canaan, what were they told was to be their first destination? Well, some time earlier, God had instructed Moses that when he brought the people out of Egypt, he was immediately to bring them to the mountain of God. Today, we most often refer to the mountain of God as Mount Sinai. So where is that mountain? Let's backtrack for a minute to find out. Moses was still in the court of Pharaoh, but after he had killed that Egyptian and fled to avoid prosecution, we know that he went to the land of Midian. The location of the land of Midian is very well established. There's no doubt about that. Midian is on the western end of what today we call the Arabian Peninsula. It was there in Midian that Moses encountered God on a hilltop, the burning bush incident. Exodus 3.1 tells us about that Amazing event. It says, Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, Yithro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Still in Midian, Moses had moved his flocks to the westernmost side of this wilderness, the Midian wilderness, where he resided. Now, a little bit further down in Exodus... Exodus 3, verse 12, we come to this all-important statement. And Moses is still in the midst of the burning bush incident when this happens. And says this, And he, God, said, Certainly I'll be with you, Moses, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. This mountain. The same mountain, Moses was getting his walking orders to go fetch the people of Israel out of Egypt is the same mountain that Moses was to bring the Israelites to encounter God upon their exit from Egypt. So, Mount Sinai is not on the Sinai Peninsula. It's on the Arabian Peninsula. Now, could that be right? Apostle Paul says so. In Galatians 4.25, Paul says, Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Okay. Don't get upon the Hagar term, because Paul was just using Hagar, mother of Ishmael, to make an illustration. The information important to our current subject is the location of Mount Sinai. Paul says Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Arabia, of course, is where Midian is. Philo the great Jewish philosopher of Alexandria, Egypt, also says Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Joseph, or Josephus rather, who lived during the time of Christ, says it was common knowledge in his day that Mount Sinai was in the Arabian Peninsula. 
So if the mountain where the people of the Exodus went to receive the law was in Arabia, why do all modern day Christian travelers, me included, go to a monastery at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula that's identified as Mount Sinai? Why do all the books today, just like this map does, show the route of the Exodus going right through that particular location? Well, prior to about 300 A.D., there was absolutely nothing culturally, traditionally, historically in Egypt, Palestine, or Arabia, or anywhere else for that matter, that connected the tip of the Sinai Peninsula as the location as the mountain of God. It wasn't until Christianity had emerged as a fully Gentile religion and every element of Jewishness was now taboo that the Sinai Peninsula was finally considered as being the place of the Ten Commandments. And it happened when some ascetic monks in the 4th century A.D., were wandering through this area and they felt that a particular mountain at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula resembled some of the biblical descriptions of the mountain of God. They decided this must be the place. They even named that particular mountain, Mount Sinai. It had been never had that name up until that point. And from that and nothing else, the church has made it a tradition that this is the place that Moses spoke of in the Bible. They built a, a church there, actually a, a, a monastery, and that's that. Now let's look at one more issue. The Red Sea crossing. And First of all, I want to say I'm not going to try to find a way using some rare but natural phenomenon as a way to explain the parting of the waters and the drying of the seabed. It was an act of God. It was a miracle. Now, as is well known from times of antiquity, there existed a trade route that went across um, the, the entire Sinai Peninsula. You see it mapped out here for you. In fact, this is probably the route that Moses followed when he fled Egypt as a young fugitive. And this route leads to a long, winding riverbed that goes through the mountainous areas of the, of the Sinai and dumps out at the Gulf of Aqaba, a finger of the Red Sea. Right. At the end of this gorge here, and you see this um, here, for example, in, in, another, in a satellite photo, is a place called Pihahirot, right, which is a huge beach, fully capable of holding two to three million people. Directly across the Gulf of Aqaba, what you're looking at here is this right here, is another huge beach right, that lies on the opposite shore. Here's the thing. The Gulf of Aqaba is a very deep body of water. It averages around a thousand feet deep. Okay. Now, what, what must be considered is that when God parted the water and dried the sea floor, the geography must not have been too steep of an incline from the beach down to the sea floor or, or too rocky or an even or 
a couple of million people with elderly and children and disabled and livestock would never have been able to travel over it. Between these two beaches that I've identified for you, one on each side of the Gulf, is a raised, a naturally raised portion of seabed. It's only about 50 feet under the water surface. It's very wide. It's sandy. It's relatively flat. If the Gulf were drained of the water, of its water, right at this point, we would find a perfect land bridge between the two sides of the Gulf. Well, regardless of their route out of Egypt, the Israelites are free. It was 430 years that they spent down there, and it's now about 1350 B.C. And though we are studying the Israelites, you know, the rest of the world wasn't without activity. Okay. Far to the north, the Assyrians are a new and growing power with, the, with empire building in mind. To the west, the Greeks are now sailing as far as England and Ireland. In the Mediterranean, Crete, with its highly advanced civilization, art, Science, perhaps surpassing that even of the Egyptians, suddenly disappears for reasons that scientists and archaeologists they still can't agree upon. Now, estimates of the size of the group that Moses was leading out of Egypt were from 3,000 on one end to 3 million on the other. Okay. The only numbers that the Bible gives us are that there were uh, 600,000 men capable of bearing arms that were included in this group. If one considers the arms-bearing age to have been from about 17 to 40, and more likely it was 20 to maybe the late 40s, it would be reasonable to multiply that number by five or six to account for women, children, elderly males and females. Okay. Now, a lot of liberal scholars even doubt the biblical reference to 600,000. For another reason, they would need, it was a really vast horde of people. Okay. All evidence actually points to that large number. I mean, the Egyptians were so afraid of Israel's enormous population in their land that they took this drastic measure of killing the Hebrew firstborn males just to slow their growth. I mean, this would only have harmed all of their aggressive building plans. And we know that for a long time, after the Israelites left, building in Egypt crawled nearly to a halt and their civilization stalled out for a while. A few thousand Israelites in a land estimated to have been populated by 10 to 12 million people at that time, mostly Egyptians, wouldn't have created alarm by their presence nor certainly economic breakdown by their leaving. If, however, maybe a quarter of that population was Israelites, as suggested by the Bible, that's a whole different matter. And it would explain the severe economic downturn Egypt experienced immediately following the Exodus. A number in the two to three million range is probably about right. Now, God led the Israelites with a cloud in the day, a column of fire at night, and as we mentioned, they, during the first three weeks... They traveled day and night. After all, in the mind of Pharaoh, these Israelites were fugitives. They were escapees. They weren't refugees. 
Right? The Israelites were very aware of God's presence with them. About a month into their journey, many realities of their changed living conditions began to settle in. Not the least of which was how a wandering horde of two to three million hungry mouths was going to be fed. They were allowed to take flocks and herds with them, but grain, of course, was their staple food. Right? Even if they had brought some grain with them, it would have lasted only a few days, a few weeks at best. Well, their route required them to stay completely away from known natural food and water sources. They were in a desert wilderness that even today is inhabited by no more than perhaps 4,000 people. Okay. But even if they had followed such routes, it's unthinkable that there was any way that they could have organized themselves to provide the huge volumes of food and water that was going to be required. I mean, feeding two to three million people could only occur in a very structured, sophisticated city like what they had come from in Egypt. And here they were, displaced city slickers, suddenly turned into wandering tent dwellers. They didn't have any idea how to survive in this place. The U.S. Army Quartermaster has calculated what it would take to provision three million people. On a daily basis, it would take 11 million gallons of water and the capacity of all the freight cars of two trains, each of them a mile long for food. And this was every day. This wouldn't account, of course, for food and water required for the flocks and herds. God solved this problem simply and elegantly. He just rained food from the sky. This is a, 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 apparently a tasty, nutritious food that they used as their primarily food supply for the whole 40 years they were in the desert. Boring, but pretty healthy. And as they needed water, God provided. He even sprang it forth from rocks. Right? Apparently in enormous volumes. And by the way, upon entering the promised land, the manna stopped as quickly as it had started. Well, about 12 weeks after leaving Egypt, they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, also called Mount Oreb, the mountain of God. The mountaintop that Moses would ascend was ringed in clouds. God called to him. It must have been like deja vu to Moses as he remembered back 40 years to when he first met God in that burning bush. Okay. And there God reiterated these promises he had made to Moses and to the Israelites during that ringing out of Pharaoh's will back in Egypt. But this time God went even further. He said, if you'll keep this covenant I'm about to give you, you will become my own treasure from among all the peoples in the world. You'll be a kingdom of priests for me. A nation set apart. Moses climbs back down that mountain. He assembles all the people. And certainly a couple of million people did not hear Moses' voice. But to those leaders and elders who did hear Moses announce what God had just told him, they replied, all that the Lord has spoken will do. He climbs back up the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. Actually, he goes back up and down the mountain a, whole, a number of times. These laws and documents he received 
we today call the Torah. And one trip back down the mountain, Moses returns to find many of the disgruntled Israelites have built a golden calf. For 400 years in Egypt had polluted their worship. And many of their worship practices become pagan and an abomination to God. The golden calf, without doubt, represented the Apis bull, a very high deity in Egypt, of which the people were fully aware. And Moses, infuriated, hurls these stone tablets of the Ten Commandments down upon the ground in a rage. All right? And he follows God's orders that the still faithful of Israel kill as many of those calf worshippers as they could. A bloodbath ensues and all the rebels are purged. It was out at Mount Sinai that the Levites were first anointed as God's priests. And Aaron as the first high priest. And among the instructions that God gave to Moses was that an earthly model of God's heavenly dwelling place was to be constructed to exacting standards. This wilderness tabernacle, as it's called, was an elaborate, richly decorated tent that was to travel with the Israelites. And around the tent, which consisted of two compartments, was a large courtyard where the priests would officiate as the Israelite worshippers brought their animal sacrifices to be slaughtered and burned on the, the brazen altar. Inside the tent were special ritual furnishings. The most famous of these, of course, was the Ark of the Covenant with its all-important lid called the mercy seat. The Ark was placed at the rearmost compartment of the tent, the compartment called the Holy of Holies. It was there that Moses would meet with God when God called to him. Well, after about a year camped at the base of Mount Sinai, Moshe leads the people to the oasis of Kadesh Barnea. And Kadesh was at the southern border of the land of Canaan, the land they'd been sent to claim. It was about a 150-mile journey, about 11 days to get there. But it was also over some really bad, rocky, dry, hard terrain. And the people grumbled all along the way. Now, they're a little more than 15 months into their journey to the land God had promised them. And their tempers were getting short. They didn't feel they could stand much more of this. Little did they know what was actually going to lay ahead of them. Moses' own sister... Miriam, one of his staunchest supporters, wonders out loud if God and Moses have any clue what they're doing. She's struck with leprosy, or actually sarat, not leprosy, All right, for her, skin, her sin of contempt and disbelief. Well, upon their arrival at Kadesh, your Bibles will sometimes just shorten it and call it Kadesh. Kadesh, Barnea, Kadesh are the same place. Moses immediately sends out spies to reconnoiter, knowing full well the promised land, Canaan, is inhabited by a people who just aren't going to be very thrilled 
at the prospect of three million foreigners showing up at their doorstep. He wants to know what they're up against. Twelve spies are sent out, one from each tribe, and they return, of course, with conflicting stories. Ten of them say the land is everything God promised, but the inhabitants are big, strong, and they're well-armed, and it'd be suicide to engage these people in battle. Joshua, a member of the tribe of Ephraim, and Caleb, from the tribe of Judah, have a totally different impression. They think the Israelites should go ahead and attack immediately and just stand on God's promise of victory. Not coincidentally, it would be the tribes of Ephraim and Judah that would one day become dominant over all the other tribes of Israel. And the two tribes that Jacob would bless with the firstborn blessing would become the leaders of Israel. Rumors spread around the Israelite encampment. The people don't want any battle. They have no interest in battle. Okay? Their expectation was that the hardest part of their transition to a new home would be the journey. Okay? So they whine and they cry and they tear their clothes in anguish and they wonder why God would bring them all the way out here just to die. Then the unthinkable. They mute me. They decide to appoint a new leader and do away with Moses. Bad idea. Bad idea. God decides he's going to judge these rebels with poisonous snake bites and sicknesses and all manner of pestilence. So Moses pleads with God. God forgive these people's rebellion. They don't know what they're doing. And God relents. But a price, unfortunately now, is going to be extracted for this rebellion. God declares that not one of these Israelites who are currently of an age of accountability will live to ever see the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb who did their best to persuade the people to believe God and trust Him. Sadly, for other reasons, this is going to apply to Moses as well. So, there they were standing at the threshold of centuries of promise and the Israelites are turned back back into the barren desert only two years now removed from dwelling in comfortable mud brick homes in Egypt's great cities three million Israelites now live as Bedouins still live to this day journeying from oasis to oasis living in goatskin tents well finally at the appointed time, the Israelites again begin their move towards Canaan, the promised land. But this time, they don't hesitate to move forward and follow God. They circle around. They avoid the land of Moab and Edom and took up, at first, a much less formidable foe on in Heshbon, which was north of Moab. Then they fought and they won. They, they used that area for a staging ground to conquer land a little more south of it. And then eventually they used that as a staging ground to attack Canaan. Two of the tribes of Israel and one half of another decided they didn't want to go any further. And so they decided to settle there on the east side of the Jordan River outside of the promised land. It's about 1300 B.C. 
And the Israelites are standing on the east bank of the Yarden, the Jordan River, ready to take possession of Canaan. Moses dies. And they mourn him for 30 days. Moses, the greatest prophet, the only prophet to know God face to face. The Torah makes it clear that he had direct conversation with God throughout his entire ministry. Joshua has now appointed the new leader. And next week, we're going to follow him as he leads God's people to their new home in the promised land.